Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host and a professor and am very concerned about public understanding of science. And today's topic is an extremely important one. Uh, Today we're going to talk about mRNA vaccines, something that's been in the news lately and a really, really hot topic. But it's an old topic. It's been around for a while, and you'll see there's a lot of interesting nuance to this. I had originally reached out to a number of the leading companies and personalities who have been working in this space, but the communications folks at these companies have been gatekeepers. They don't want to talk to the public on a podcast, at least at this point. I don't quite understand why. If there's one thing we learned about new technology and its uh, appreciation by the public, it is getting out in front of the communication strategy. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little disenchanted with the way that the companies responded, but whatever. So if they're not going to do it, I'm going to grab the bull by the horns. So uh, my guest today is uh, me. <laughs> Um, I'm going to tell you all about this and, and, and we'll have resources available on the website that allow you to do a little more, um, investigation into the seminal work that really shaped this field. So why does it matter? Um, as of the release of this podcast, the COVID-19 pandemic is, is exploding uh, in the USA and internationally. I think we're going on about, um, one and a half million deaths worldwide you know, many more cases, obviously, maybe 300,000 or 300,000 deaths in the States uh, coming soon. And we've known for 10 months now that the best way to beat this virus is by modification of human behavior. It's just a virus. It's a little collection of biology that can't replicate on its own. It needs a human host. And on this podcast, going back into early February, uh, we've spoken with Dr. Alaria Kapua, who told us all about this, and, and we made some predictions, and we spoke with Chubby Emu and, and other experts in this area. Bottom line is, is that it takes humans to pass it on. If humans don't pass it on, it's done. Kaput. So our job during a pandemic is to stay home. If we must go out, go into the world, pretending you're horribly infected and can harm others. And it can be done safely. You can go out and, you know, wear the mask and all that stuff, right? It's a respiratory virus. It's transmitted by droplets we breathe. And, you know, I know it's, it's in Florida and it's November and I can see the droplets condense when I blow the air out of my lungs uh, into the air. You know, it's, it's cool in the morning. And you can see that cloud of vapor, and that cloud of doom can kill somebody if they're immunocompromised or uh, in some sort of high-risk group. So age, obesity, other comorbidities. 
And so really the big deal is, is to cover ourselves up and try to limit that cloud and better yet, stay out of crowds, stay out of the public. Now, the problem is, is that staying home and covering up is a bridge too far for a lot of folks, at least here in the States. And other places have beat the virus with a stringent adherence to, uh, to different strategies, you know, staying home, uh, you know, maybe limiting their access to different uh, venues, different businesses, different uh, 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 places where crowds may gather, churches, whatever. Um, those places are um, like, you know, it's like Victoria, Australia, the state of Victoria, which is Melbourne and uh, some other major cities down there. Uh, they have not had a COVID case reported in maybe 25 days or so. So it does work. Okay. And I know there's folks who don't like that idea and, you know, like shutting down or limiting commerce is looked at very negatively here with some folks in the States, even if it can protect public health. So um, in order for us to really look out for public health and economies and the developing world, we need to stop transmission from person to person. And, and the best thing we can do is modify behavior to stop transmission, at least at this point. Now, others will argue the best thing to do is increase transmission. And there's three epidemiologists that have been making the rounds on Fox News and other media that support what's called the Great Barrington Declaration. And, and, and when you read it, it's not awful. I mean, it looks pretty good on its surface. It makes a lot of sense. But ultimately, it's a question of, do you let the virus just run wild? Let everyone go out and catch it, recover, and live life normally. Uh, tell the vulnerable folks to stay home and get out of the way. Everyone else, have at it. And the goal of this is to induce what's called herd immunity, that reach a level in the population where everyone has the antibodies or the, the immunity to the, the virus and get everybody sick. And if everyone's sick, then the virus can't replicate and we reach that dead end, right? Same thing. If it can't replicate, can't spread, it's done. The problem is uh, the virus hits a dead end, but so do a lot of people. It would kill millions. And they say the vulnerable would be, you know, at home and out of harm's way, but I, I don't believe that. I think uh, we, we are all vectors of this and people get pandemic fatigue and, you know, we see what happens. So, you know, leave it to three Ivy League eggheads and a predominantly pro-life audience to happily throw grandma under the bus. You know, it's, it's just, you know, not to get politics involved because I don't normally do that. But I really do see this being a very draconian measure that is um, uh, unfortunately going to put people in harm's way. Because this Great Barrington Declaration, what it is, is it's a cop-out. It waves a white flag. It says that we as a nation, as a people, as a globe, are not willing to temporarily modify our behaviors. And instead, we'll just live with the pandemic by fueling it. We're going to pour gas on the fire. Few people get lost along the way. Oh, well. And the problem with that is that when you let the virus run wild, you're also allowing selection and mutation to occur and potentially make a more virulent virus just because of the number of people that are being infected, maybe better transmission from person to person or more lethality. So 
Herd immunity is a great idea, but achieving it through massive infection, maybe not. The best way to achieve it is through a vaccine. If everyone's vaccinated, you raise the antibodies in our, in, in our bodies, and the virus can't spread from person to person. Smallpox, polio, measles, these are diseases that were almost eradicated. Well, smallpox has been. Our behaviors allow them to creep back, right? You know, measles, go to Disney World, that kind of thing. Thank goodness we didn't have a Great Barrington Declaration back when polio was pervasive. You know, we, we'd, I don't think we'd run out of iron lungs. <laughs> so, so how do we develop a vaccine quickly? How do we do this? And historically, the problem is that vaccines are protein antigens, typically, that come from weakened or killed viruses. So you raise viruses in chicken eggs or in cell culture, mammalian cell culture, then you purify that virus, then you destroy it with heat or chemicals, and then inject it. And the dead virus still maintains the molecular fingerprints of the virus, so the body sees the protein signatures as foreign, and it ignites that immune response against it. Those antibodies then provide long-term immunity, at least to some degree, depending. You know, we've talked to many on this podcast about influenza and annual uh, need for annual vaccines, and, and we've talked about that. So why not just make antibodies uh, to the virus? You know, just make the antibody and do it in E. coli or something. And the problem is that recombinant mammalian antibodies, they're these complicated heterotetramers. They're multiple subunits, and they have modifications. They need things like glycosylation and, and formation of disulfide bridges and all these things. It, it makes it a little tricky to do uh, that way and, and maybe a little more expensive type of, of uh, solution, maybe a little impractical. So the other thing that you could do is what if you could inject the mRNA for a uh, uh, um, an antibody and have the body make it? And then we'll talk about this later. But they've done this in uh, mouse models with human immune systems. Um, they've been able to gen use mRNA as an antitoxin against things like ricin, snake venom, um, botulinum toxin. So there's a lot of interesting potential in the use of mRNA as a um, antitoxin and maybe some other ways to generate antibodies in, in, in vivo. So uh, we didn't really move much, it didn't talk about mRNA yet. We really need to do that. So what is mRNA and, and why does it work? And, and why are these solutions to mRNA more, more attractive? And here's the deal. The, the bottom line is, is that it's fast, cheap, and good. And a friend of mine told me you could never have all three, but I think mRNA fits the bill. Um, you can scale it to meet a new pandemic quickly. It's relatively safe and effective with few side effects in its modern form. And we'll talk about that, I guess. And you can come up with, you know, 8 billion doses. It's a, it's a relatively simple manufacturing question relative to what you had to do previously with raising viruses in uh, eggs or human cells or animal cells and um, mammalian cells and then purifying a virus and killing it and administering it. 
So let's start by talking about what is mRNA? What is this stuff? And the M stands for messenger. The messenger is a central player in what's called the central dogma of molecular biology. And the central dogma of molecular biology states that you have three major entities that, uh, that, that are at work in taking genetic information and having it go to function. You have DNA in the nucleus. You have mRNA, which is a transient state of copy of the information in DNA that leaves the safety of the nucleus and goes out into the cytosol of the cell. And then the third step is this idea of translation, taking that mRNA message and translating it into a protein. And protein is the, uh, are the enzymes and the structural elements of cells. So that's the idea is that mRNA is this intermediate step, that the information in mRNA originally comes from DNA, that mRNA information then can be converted into a uh, or it's not really converted into it, it's that information is read to properly assemble a protein that is now an enzyme or structural element of the cell. So what if you could feed a cell that intermediate step? Give it mRNA for something that's not in the DNA. Maybe something like viral information and have it make a viral protein. And that's the basis of mRNA vaccines. So the mRNA itself is, is the cell's USB drive. Think of it that way. It's this temporary repository of data copied from the permanent source, the cell's DNA, which is the, the cell's hard drive. And that, that temporary source uh, gives us the capacity to turn the body into a vaccine factory. You give the cells this temporary mRNA information, and then our cells make proteins that then activate the immune system. And again, the reason it's so attractive is because you can make a lot of mRNA. It's actually a pretty easy molecule to make. I work with it all the time. That's like one of my, one of my uh, talents is in playing with RNA. Uh, this idea of giving the cell mRNA and having it convert into an antigen, so the thing that stimulates the immune system, is really nothing new. It goes back to the 1990s, maybe even before. But the idea is in 1990, um, mice were injected with mRNA and it expressed the protein. I think it was luciferase, the firefly protein. I think they uh, gave a subcutaneous injection and you could see it glow. Kind of cool. Okay, so you're doing transient production of protein, meaning you're not putting this in the DNA. You're giving that intermediate. You're giving it the USB drive that, you know, is, is temporary information that, um, that allows the cell to make this pro protein over a short time. And so this was really kind of cool. It was, it was a good set of experiments that were done in 1989, 1990, to show that you could inject mRNA and have a protein produced. And uh, there was therapeutic evidence of mRNA function in rats that wasn't far behind. That, that came up shortly after. I think they expressed vasopressin or something. But uh, let's uh, geek out on this a little bit for people very interested in mRNA. 
Um, if you're taking mRNA, which we know is this transient molecule, when you're using it as a vaccine, you have to do a couple things. And you have to correct for codon bias. So the way in which viruses uh, information is a little different in the way it prefers its information uh, to be uh, translated into protein, a little different than mammalian. Um, there's uh, five and three prime untranslated regions. So those of you who think about um, the genetic information, you have information that is encoded in, uh, in, in, a, in a central part of a molecule. I shouldn't say that. You have information that's encoded by, by RNA and DNA. But RNA also has other features. They have regions that are not translated, but are important for stability and to promote translation. So there's all these other structural elements that come along with that information. And scientists have kind of optimized that, at least in the area of RNA vaccines. There's also some other things that happen in eukaryotic cells. You have um, caps and tails. You have ways in which the, the, this molecule, which is a single-stranded molecule, unlike DNA, which is the double-stranded molecule. The single-stranded molecule is vulnerable to a number of chemical uh, assaults inside the cell. There are multiple enzymes that break down mRNA. And that mRNA breakdown is uh, like a constant dynamic process of the cell, of the, the cell modifying the RNA and uh, digesting the RNA, you know, back and forth. Um, there's a cap that keeps one end uh, protected and a tail, which also protects the mRNA. Now, there's other ways that uh, people have suggested to protect the mRNA that's being introduced as a vaccine. Um, one of them has been encapsulation. So incorporating it into nanoparticles. Uh, Bill Gates has proposed this so that he can infect you with Microsoft information. You know, not really a joke. <laughs> but people have actually um, bound mRNA to nanoparticles and at least in vitro and maybe even in vivo have shown that it helps protect that molecule and give it longer half-life. And uh, some folks are using, and maybe the companies are using a lipid-based encapsulation. So putting the um, mRNA into a fat droplet and then injecting it that way and giving it a little more protection against the harsh environment of the body and also maybe facilitating its, uh, its movement into membranes. So that's kind of the basic idea. I, I originally thought that this was just injecting naked RNA, you know, just taking mRNA and injecting it into the body. Turns out it's much more complicated than that. So we'll take a break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about Catalin Carico and some of her discoveries and some of currently what's happening in terms of the development of vaccines and where we are. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. The guest today is me. <laughs> and we'll be back in just a moment. Our numbers keep going up, and that's thanks to you. There's a boatload of podcasts out there for you to listen to. Yet our listenership keeps growing. That's because the best way to grow a podcast is word of mouth. Which is a strange saying because I don't know any other orifice that generates words. Well, sort of. The stats have gone up like blue ballots on November 4th, and as we approach 1.5 million downloads in six years, we thank you for your loyalty to this enterprise. 
Keep up the good work. Tell a friend if you have any left after the election. Tell your family so they'll have something to do when we don't get together for the holidays. Or if you just want to sulk under the duvet by yourself, shoot us a few shekels over on the Patreon and we'll buy our way into more ears. It's all about sharing science in a time when innovation comes fast. You always can count on hearing from the cutting edge here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with me. <laughs> I can't stand it. You know, I always love having a guest because it's much more interesting. It's, it's more fun to interview somebody. But once in a while, we get into these bumps where we got to just grab the bull by the horns and push on. So I wanted to start with where all of this took a turn. And the problem is, is that there is some immunomodulatory effect of, MR, of mRNA, that when you inject RNA, which single-stranded RNA or double-stranded RNA into the body, it does some stuff that's not always good. And when you uh, inject mRNA, there are receptors in the cells, on the cells, that recognize it and potentially see it as foreign material, maybe a viral attack. And it was noted that bacterial RNA and human RNA of the same sequence induced for two very different responses. So something was happening with, with, with human RNA and the way it was modified. And some of the big um, breakthroughs came when it was noted that bacterial messenger RNA doesn't have nucleoside modifications. You don't have other changes that are done post-transcriptionally to that to that um, mRNA sequence. Mammalian ones have modified nucleosides, so the letters have little modifications, little decorations that change them just a bit. So the G, A, C, and T, or an RNA, G, A, C, and U, they get little changes that happen, such as 5-methylcytidine. They get a methyl group attached to the C, or uh, N6-methyladenosine, where you get a, a, a methyl group on the A. Uh, there's um, things like enosine, which are um, novel amino acids. I'm sorry, mo- novel nucleosides. Ugh. And and many other types of um, O-methylated nucleosides. Uh, methylguanosine, um, that's part of the cap, usually. Um, and so there's all these little modifications that happen. And those modifications are important in how this the cells evade immunogenic response, which induces inflammation and cytokines and can be dangerous. So this was all discovered um, by Catalin Carrico. She, back in the 1990s, early 1990s, maybe even sooner, hypothesized that mRNA could work by injecting it and inducing uh, the body to become the factory, to produce proteins that could induce a response. And her story is fascinating. I really want to get her on the podcast. I'm really working on it. So we're going to try to do that. But she had this great hypothesis, but can never get funded. Everybody said, no way, too risky, never happened. <laughs> Who's laughing now, right? Um, she was the one who figured out that there were modifications of the molecule that would make it less visible or less immunogenic uh, to the cell's surveillance system. 
And this was a paper in 2005, and I've cited it in, uh, on the website that corresponds with this episode. So this was the seminal breakthrough that really made this field take off. And, and the fact that now you could modify mRNA uh, in ways that would make it less likely to have negative consequences, yet would still produce a protein that was immunogenic. So the, the immune response came from the protein that was produced, not from the mRNA that was introduced. Now, the beauty part of mRNA is that when you do this as a vaccination, the time course is extremely rapid. You can detect protein from this within, within an hour, and it peaks somewhere about 24 hours. So it's pretty quick. Now, let's talk about COVID in specific, in particular, is the mRNA encodes the spike protein. So you look at coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and other coronaviruses, look like a ball with uh, those projections. And corona meaning crown, it looks like a crown kind of, I guess. I've never seen someone wearing something like that on their head. (laughs) Well, the basic idea is you can inject the mRNA into a patient and they will produce the antibodies against the spike protein. And I should mention, it's not just injection. They've done this intravenously, Uh, nasal sprays, you know, that's kind of a detail that I think they're still working out as to what's the best way to administer mRNA um, treatment. And that's the one for COVID-2, SARS-CoV-2. It's it's a uh, protection against the spike protein. What's really interesting about this is that the idea of of actually demonstrating that mRNA can, can work functionally to produce an antibody against a, uh, a pathogen is nothing terribly new either. I think the first one was in 1993, where you could take liposome encapsulated mRNA uh, for the influenza virus nucleoprotein, and you could in- induce the production of nucleoprotein-specific cytotoxic T cells. So it, it was something that was being done quite a while ago. And 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 this technology, again, it, it just has kind of bounced around place to place, you know, and, and maybe it's kind of taken a backseat to other what have been considered to be more promising therapies. However, there have been a number of companies that have built their core around mRNA therapies. And the one we discussed on this podcast was Moderna. But there's uh, CureVac, um, uh BioNTech, Pfizer, a whole bunch of these. And when you look at the, 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 the different viruses that they've been targeting, rabies, influenza, Zika, um, uh, cytomegalovirus, um, chikungunya, there's a whole series of these which have uh, trials that are well underway. Some of them may be going back to 2014, uh, maybe even sooner. And these are all in, enrolled trials that are, are testing these cells or these therapies. Now you can see that, okay, we're talking about mRNA therapies that nothing has been approved yet, I don't think. Maybe, maybe they have in some context for animals, but I'm not sure, but rabies maybe. But the bottom line is, is that this, here we're talking about COVID and a mRNA-based therapy in a year rather than these other ones that have been kind of moving along through the usual glacial 
pipeline of approval. Um, so, um, you know, th this is th this is a, a rather mature field that has really garnered recent attention because of the pandemic. Now, let's talk about how you make mRNA. I mean, the literature says that you use what's called in vitro transcription, which is pretty straightforward. You use a DNA plasmid template that encodes that information. A plasmid is just a circle of DNA, and it has certain little features that, uh, that, that, you, that tell the replicating or the mRNA transcribing machinery where to start. And so you can take this circular plasmid piece of DNA, you can put it into solution with uh, the, the um, ribonucleotides, and which are the you know AG, AGC and U, and put in a bacterial RNA polymerase, and it'll recognize that start site and start making RNA and make a lot of it. We used to do this for experiments. We can make a boatload of mRNA really easy. And then that RNA is, uh, you can cap it enzymatically, you can add the tail, you can do other modifications, and there you go. You got it. Pretty straightforward. Easy to purify, too. Now, the big deal has been, um, you know, thinking about questions of how do you get this mRNA into a cell? And a lot of experiments have been done on this, um, really looking at temperature and dose and encapsulation, all that stuff. And most of the mRNA seems to come into cells through what are called caviole, which is, uh, it means little caves in Latin. Um, or lipid rafts, right? These little invaginations in cells that you find in the endothelium that they, uh, the, the, they kind of pinch off and take a little bit of the outside of the environment with it and move into the cell. And there are scavenger receptors and other ways in which have been known to concentrate these uh, little lipid rafts on the cell surface. And, and maybe this is, and they do have an affinity. There's certain ones that do have an affinity for negatively charged macromolecules. So this is RNA. It, it can pick up mRNA and move it into the cell. So this is not some magical system. I mean, this is, this is uh, exploiting a very well-understood biochemistry and, and cellular biology, you know, what we know cells do. So thus far, we've talked about where this came from, the fact that it's a mature technology, um, the fact that you can make mRNA in a laboratory of high purity and then it moves into cells when you inject it or breathe it in or whatever they have you do. Okay, now what are some of the concerns and some of the things that you will have to confront as you discuss this with people in the public? mRNA cannot give you COVID-19, right? It's just one protein that is recognized by the body that is part of the virus. Um, the mRNA goes into the cytoplasm of the cell. It doesn't go into the nucleus. It doesn't become part of your DNA like HIV does. Uh, this mRNA just goes into the cell. It's translated into protein, and then it breaks down. It has a half-life. It goes away. You, you can inject it, and then you never see it again, but you see the antibodies against the protein come up. That's why this is so cool. Now, what are some of the legitimate barriers? And, and really, the big ones are um, things like unintended effects, you know, side effects. Um, it, the mRNA strand can induce an unintended immune reaction. It happens. Uh, 
Um, and it's gotten better. I think the modifications um, that are used um, have been very effective and have really minimized that, that opportunity for um, off-target effects. Um, delivery. Delivery is tricky because of, as I mentioned, mRNA is inherently very unstable. There's uh, ways that um, different companies are, are, are doing this. I really wanted to talk to them about it, but um, being packaged into liposomes or nanoparticles, as I mentioned. The other big problem is storage. When mRNA is so unstable, you have to keep it frozen or refrigerated and, 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 and really cold. <laughs> um, we keep it in a minus 80 freezer. So Pfizer's vaccine got to store it at minus 70. Um, CureVax, theirs has to be at five degrees. So it's, it's different companies have different formulations that render variable stability for that mRNA vaccine message. So who are these players? Who, who's playing in the space? And really, it's two big companies at this point that are doing this. It's Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna. And we talked to Moderna about Moderna with Catherine Elton in episode 253 on this podcast series. Really fascinating. They were able to get the sequence. When China published that sequence, uh, they came up with their um, mRNA-1273 vaccine in 42 days. I mean, this was like, you know, really quick that they were able to do this. We've seen a lot of discussion about the efficacy of these approaches. And in the last several weeks, we've seen that the, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have conferred 90-some percent of, effect, of efficacy against, the, against infection. The trials were pretty simple. You took large groups of people, and these are pretty substantial trials. Um, well, you know, that, well, anyway, we won't go into that right now, but basically the numbers were good. And you either injected them with a placebo or the mRNA. And then you let those two groups in these double-blinded studies uh, go out into the world. And some of them will get the virus. Or some of them, or hopefully all of them, not hopefully all of them, you don't want to say that. Uh, hopefully in these groups, just do normal interaction, will run into um, the virus. And then you can compare the incidence of infection in the placebo group versus the incidence of infection in the mRNA vaccinated group. And what they showed was that when you receive the mRNA vaccination, you were much less likely to be infected. It works. And very minimal side effects reported, which is great. So this is where we are right now. Um, they're talking about having this vaccine available sometime in early 2021. And this is where you come in. You have to talk to people about this. Share this podcast. Talk to them about the concerns that people have and why those concerns have some validity but maybe are not reality. And, and, and really help people understand what this is and what this isn't. The real silver lining of this pandemic is that we've now accelerated the era of mRNA vaccines. And trials and studies are, are, going, to, are going to go ballistic in the next couple of years. You'll see new vaccines that maybe will be replaced, measles and mumps and all that old stuff, with maybe one mRNA vaccine batch that you get as a child to confer all of the immunity against all of the 
things we were vaccinated for. We may not have to grow them in uh, in cells or in tissue culture anymore, which that has their hazards too. Google SV40 virus. The big deal is that the the pandemic has ushered in what could be a new era of application of mRNA in infectious disease. And then it's kind of exciting. The big deal here is communication. Something like 50 to 60% of people say they will not take this vaccine. They say it moved too fast, that it it wasn't adequately tested, that it could be dangerous, that Bill Gates is implanting nanobots that are going to be used to control us and I don't know do what. (laughs) I don't know that Gates needs another puppet. And for what it's worth, you know, it's really important for us just to talk about these things with people and and allay their concerns because public health hinges on herd immunity and all of us having immunity towards this particular disease. If enough of us have the immunity, it will substantially curtail the prevalence of the virus in, in, in society. You can't, uh, you can't pass on the fire if there's no more matches to burn. So that's my uh, two cents on the mRNA vaccines, and I hope you find it helpful. I had a lot of questions about it, and only after I did a lot of research would I sort that out. Um, the resources are available on the website, and uh, some key articles about mRNA vaccines are presented. And for fun financial disclosure, I guess I own a little bit of stock in Pfizer. I have for years. It's a good dividend maker. And um, while I'm not a financial expert, I think I'm watching all the companies involved in this space. And I think, you know, mRNA vaccines and therapeutics are a good place to be. And I think I'll buy on the dips. I think when we have opportunities to uh, invest in these things, we could. And I probably own positions in most of these companies through my retirement accounts that I don't actively manage, and I'm not sure what's in there. So someday when someone uh, gets my financial information and hacks it again and puts it out on the, on the web, you'll be able to tell me what I have. <laughs> so um, I hope this was useful, and I hope to be able to have um, some of the experts in this field on the podcast because it's such an important topic. I mostly want to speak to Dr. Catalin Carico. Dr. Carico uh, has a fascinating story, and I don't want to get into it here. I really would like to hear it from her. So I'm crossing my fingers, hoping she'll join me on this podcast. So once again, share this with a friend, discuss the topic of mRNA vaccines, get people excited about the, about becoming immunized for this to really curb the pandemic. Because when it comes down to it, Protecting ourselves is really protecting everybody. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulton and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. 
and support us at a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.